I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I interviewed one of America's leading historians, S.C. Gwynn, about his new book that came out in late October, Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. We did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on November 21st. Enjoy. It's now my great thrill to introduce my friend, S.C. Sam Gwynn. Sam lives in Austin uh, for many years. He was the top writer for Texas Monthly, wrote the cover stories for probably most of the most memorable articles you remember in the history of that magazine. In the last few years, he's emerged as one of America's leading historians. His book, Empire of the Summer Moon, about the history of the Comanches in Texas, sold over a million copies and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, his biography of Stonewall Jackson was a New York Times bestseller and sold 250,000 copies. His last book, We Texas Football Fans Love the Perfect Pass, about the invention of the air raid spread offense, pioneered by Hal Mummy and Mike Leach. And now, uh, with the, in late October, we have his newest book, Hymns of the Republic, about the last year of the Civil War. Please welcome S.C. Sam Gwynn. Thank you. Now, Sam, as I mentioned, it was five years ago that you wrote the biography of Stonewall Jackson, who absolutely dominated the Civil War until he was killed in May of 1863. So you let a few years go by and 10 months of history go by, and now you've picked up on the Civil War in March of 1864 and covered the last year of the war. So what was it that inspired you to write a book on this subject? It's a good question, and, and anybody uh, writing about the Civil War needs to answer that question because there's no shortage of books on the war. Um, so what happened to me was, yeah, I had written that biography of Stonewall Jackson, and so I really got very, very familiar with the first two years of the Civil War. And I later started reading about the final year of the war. And I, as I read about the final year of the war, it just struck me how absolutely cold and hard and bitter and vengeful the war had become so much more so than it had been in the beginning. And in fact, the beginning of the war, by contrast, looked to me kind of innocent. You know, some people referred to the early war as a bandbox war, you know, meaning where men and boys marched off to war with light in their eyes while the bands played in their town square. And it was all going to be glorious, and it was all going to be over very quickly. Um, but, and of course, war is, is, you know, there was plenty of killing and death by disease and wounding in the first two years of the war, but still there seemed to me this, to be this innocence about it. I mean, truly, compared to what came later. And so I thought, and in particular, I think that the, the legacy of the Civil War, um, you know, came out of really the final year as much as anything. You had these, the rise of all these, the bitter guerrilla wars in the prisons and the and the, and the anti-civilian warfare and all this stuff that went on. So anyway, so I thought, well, it would be a great idea to do the last year of the war. Wouldn't that be fun? And so I do what you know, all uh, you know, highly trained historical researchers do. You know, I Google the subject uh, <laughs> to, see who had, to see who had done it before. And basically, nobody, or not since Bruce Catton anyway, a 1954 Pulitzer Prize winning book that some of you may have read called A Stillness at Appomattox, which I highly recommend. Anyway, but as since then, nobody had done the last year of the war. 
There had been a book called 1861. There had been a book called April 1865, but not that particular way. And I, th and I thought it was, so a, one, a really good way of looking at the war. Uh, Bruce Catton had demonstrated to me, since it's my favorite book about the war, that it was a, a, a valid and compelling way to do it. So, so that was it. So that was the it was it was a way to reduce the aperture through which you look at the war. That's, you can do it through biography by following Stonewall Jackson around. You can do it by limiting your time. For those of you who were in the audience for Stephen Harrigan's uh, book event a month or so ago, he's recently written a complete history of Texas, and it's over 900 pages. So if uh, Sam had written a complete history of the Civil War, it would be over 900 pages. So we are very glad that he took one year, so your book is 350 <laughs> pages and not 900 pages. I know booksellers appreciate how shorter books sell quicker than really long books. The long books are better for doorstops, though. Yeah, they work yeah, much better. Right. Well. Can't argue with that. And you have this intriguing title, Hymns of the Republic. Of course, we think of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, but, but how did you get the plural, Hymns of the Republic? Well, I was looking for a title, and, you're, and you know, the Battle Hymn of the Republic is one of the kind of the more visible cultural artifacts of the war. Um, this kind of, uh, you know, bloodthirsty, scripture-based, you know, trampling out the vineyards where the grapes of wrath were stored. I mean, this was, you know, this is hard stuff. And anyway, so at some point I ran into a, uh, or I, I, I read about a, um, there was a song sung by black soldiers, Union soldiers, and it was called the Negro Battle Hymn. And I thought, well, that's interesting. It was a different song. So I thought, well, so there's a, a, a black version of, of a hymn, uh, which is not the same hymn as the other people would sing. And I thought, well, metaphorically speaking, I started to think, well, the war had lots of people singing lots of different hymns, from women on the home front to uh, southern soldiers to everyone else. So it was a sense, it was, it was a metaphor, I guess, for an inclusive version of the war. Mm -hmm. Now, your book begins on March 8, 1864, was when Ulysses Grant arrived in Washington, D.C. and met Abraham Lincoln for the first time to assume command of the Union Army. And you say that on that day, the nation's fate hinged on Lincoln's success or failure in the November 1864 election eight months later. So that being the case, as of March 1864, Sam, what was the likelihood of Lincoln's being reelected in November? So you're absolutely right. That, that, that everything hinges on this one thing. And it's really interesting because, and I'll answer your, your question in a second, but um, everything, everything, the Civil War is often very, very complicated. It's very hard to get to simple truths, and even to simple truths about what caused the war. Or, you know, in the beginning of the war, Lincoln said it was all about restoring the Union, not slavery. I mean, so it was hard to figure these things. Um, but uh, uh, the, the last year of the war, I'm sorry, I should say, 1864 was about one man. Because if one man, this man, Abraham Lincoln, won the election in, in November, the war was going to continue. It would be an endorsement to finish the war. If he lost, then there would probably have been peace. It would have been a vote for peace. And so that, uh, so that the fighting that went on, and my, the opening suite of my book is Lee against Grant in Northern Virginia, this titanic fight at the wilderness in Spotsylvania and Cold Harbor and Petersburg, you know, was about this one election. And what was interesting about that year for Lincoln was that if you had been able to take polls, which you couldn't because there were no polls, uh, there were only elections 
you know, elections were polls. So if you if you if there was an election for governor or something, you could see where the, where the nation was going, or for a senator, or for, for Congress or something. But uh, there were no polls, and so if but if there had been polls, um, you would have seen Lincoln about let's say here in in the beginning of my book, March of 1864, and then just basically going here, and then just going straight off the table in July. You would have seen his polls at record disapproval, record, you know, uh, 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 votes against, numbers of votes would, would have been against Lincoln. And this was because of what people perceived to be his mismanagement of the war, his un- inability to win the war, his spending. Uh, the, it wasn't really true that he was spending the... Uh, the Union into the poorhouse, but people said he was, and uh, this kind of general uh, malaise in, in the country. And, and so as that year, as the year progresses, one of the big dynamics is what's going to happen in that election. And in a lot of ways, it just builds to that election. Uh, and, the, and it's interesting because I said there's, there's a lovely simplicity to that, I think, that that's about that election. There's also a lovely simplicity to the fact that there was one thing, one event that changed that, and that was the fall of Atlanta on September 2nd, 1864. Now, one of the important things that happened during the last year of the war was that African-American soldiers, uh, by the thousands, all of a sudden entered the Union Army. What impact did they have? This an absolutely enormous impact, and I think a lot of people don't know the extent of the impact. Um, so in, in uh, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in September of 1862, but it wasn't kind of put into effect until January of 1863. And when it was, he added this paragraph to it, which is absolutely nation-changing paragraph. And what it said was is that black soldiers uh, who had been in the Union or who had been allowed to be in the Union Army before, but now he said they're going to be armed and they're going to fight. And this opened the door to 180,000 soldiers in the, black, in, the, in the Union Army, which was 10% of the Union Army, uh, which was in a, in a war of attrition, which this was at the end. It really was at the end to some extent. It was like, you open a vein, I open a vein, and we bleed, and who bleeds to death first? There was a bit of that in the last year. And so 180,000 troops made a real difference. I mean, they, many fought bravely, and in fact, they really just kind of fought like white soldiers. They were... They were brave, and they were not brave, and they were, they were just soldiers. Um, they were also, it was this, it, but, the, but they really did tip the balance. And they tipped the balance so radically in favor of the Union that the Confederacy, or Robert E. Lee became a very big proponent of having black soldiers in the Confederate Army. And at the end of the war, right at the end, the Confederate legislature voted to allow black soldiers in the Confederate Army. as strange as Slaves who would be given their freedom in exchange for this. But I mean, this is how kind of radical it was. And, and the other thing that's interesting about the advent of so many black soldiers is that if you look at those slaves, there's a one day they're slaves, they escape, they end up in a camp somewhere, and then they, then they enlist in the Union Army, and suddenly you have a person who just a few weeks ago or a few months ago wasn't allowed to marry, wasn't allowed to have property, had no legal rights, had no money or wealth, had no a job of, 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 as it would be normally measured. And suddenly that person is a soldier with a paycheck and a uniform and a purpose. And it was as Frederick Douglass, the great advocate of, uh, the great abolitionist said, it was, it was just the way to be, it was, it was the ideal way to become an American citizen. You were a soldier. So one of the great dramatic parts of the final year of the war. Mm-hmm. 
Now, as of early May 1864, that's when Grant's army and Lee's army is about to face off. Uh, Lee's army had 64,000. Grant's army had 120,000. And they had 11 months of vicious, deadly warfare before Appomattox. So at the very beginning, what was the condition of each army before they started the killing? So as we start this last, this last great kind of spasm of violence that we're talking about here, uh, the Union Army, it has to be said, is the best fed, best trained, best equipped, best you name it, in the history of the world. There had never been an army like this with this kind of resources behind it. Their diet was, uh, I mean, unprecedented. They had vegetables and they had fruit and they had plenty of meat and bread and coffee, things like coffee, which Confederates can only dream about. Um, and, and that winter, they were kind of, you know, when you read the diaries of the soldiers of that winter before this Lee and Grant fight in the spring of 1864, they're kind of, they're kind of it feels kind of cozy and snug and nice. The, uh, the rebel army was unfortunately attached. It was the appendage of a failing nation, and the nation that was failing very quickly economically. Um, the blockade, the Union blockade had shut off a lot of their markets. The, 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 the banking system, which wasn't very strong anyway, had failed. The credit for seed wasn't there. I mean, it was just, you know, the, it was kind of a disaster. You had half of all, uh, you know, uh, agricultural machinery was gone. Half of all the livestock was gone. So, so the, the, the Lee's armies and, and, and the Confederate armies were attached to this nation. And so the, the effect of that was that their, the, the supplies, the food, the uniforms, everything just got absolutely worse and worse and worse and worse. And to the point where at some point in Petersburg, these guys are just living in rat holes eating you know, rancid fat mixed with uh, cornmeal and, and people without shoes and blankets. So, so having said that, though, so you think all oh, the poor, pathetic Confederates, whatever, actually the morale in Lee's army, if we're I'm just talking about Lee's army now, the um, Army of Northern Virginia, the closest thing to an invincible army in American history, morale was high. These guys won, and they won, and they not only won, they made fools of the Union Army, and even at a, at a quote, and I'm talking about the Army of Northern Virginia now. Even at a defeat at Gettysburg, they didn't really see it that way. If you had asked them, were they beaten at Gettysburg, they wouldn't have said that. They would have said, look, we took the fight to them. We took the fight to the north. We forced them to fight a defensive battle that they came this close to losing, which is true. And if Stonewall Jackson and live, they wouldn't have lost it. Uh, <clears throat> getting my plug for Stonewall Jackson. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it really, so, so weirdly enough, in spite of this, and in spite of being outnumbered two to one, well, of course, they were used to being outnumbered two to one, morale was high in the Southern Army. And, it, and the, you saw the effect. That war went on for a whole other year. Mm -hmm. Now, in these uh, unbelievable battles uh, for the wilderness, the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, tens of thousands of Union soldiers were killed in a matter of just a few days. And this, to me, is really where the legend of Ulysses Grant began. How did he respond to those unbelievable setbacks? It's one of the great moments of the war. And uh, so here we have the fight between the two titans, the great gen Union genius of the West, you know, the undefeated you know, Ulysses S. Grant is coming. To, it's like, you know, I, I don't know. Let's see the oh, wrong like schools here. Alabama, LSU. LSU or, no, no, no. Who, it, who is it now? Ohio State. LSU, and whatever, I'm trying to pick the right thing, but it's the Battle of Titans. Um, and, and 
and they meet in the wilderness. And it's this strange thing because, you know, that a couple of years before, at the Battle of Chancellorsville, Lee's great masterpiece, one of the great masterpieces in the history of warfare, you know, Lee had beaten a Union army that would out, greatly outnumbered him. And he had done it in this place called the wilderness, which was this, just think of just about, I don't know, a 12-mile by 6-mile patch of land that's just thorny, scrubby, dense, think, just think brambles, just you know, something that if you walked through, you'd, be, you'd have cuts all over yourself because it was so dense. It was like a third-growth forest. And you know, so the wilderness would have been the last place in the world you would ever, the Union would ever have wanted to fight Robert E. Lee, again, taking away all of the Union advantages of, of artillery and giving Lee back all of his advantages to, of terrain. Well, for some boneheaded reason, Meade and Grant decided, oh, we're going to fight the battle. Or the, they didn't decide it. They let it happen. The battle gets fought again in this horrible, kind of nightmarish wilderness. And so what happens is we have this just vicious battle with lots of casualties and, and all sorts of terrible things in the woods catching on fire and everything else. At the end of which, if you look at the numbers, it's, it's a worse disaster than Chancellorsville for the Union Army. So the great Grant has been whipped. I mean, if you look at the numbers, Grant got whipped. So there's an interesting moment. After the battle's over, the evening is falling, and the men are sitting around the campfires. And they see a bunch of riders coming down a road. And they, at some point, realize that it's Grant and his staff. And the interesting thing about them is they're, they're riding south. Now, in, all of, in, in so many Union battles, not all Union battles, but a lot of major Union battles, uh, I'm thinking, you know, first Manassas, second Manassas, uh, uh, certainly Chancellorsville, the, uh, the Union Army skedaddles. I mean, they, they get beaten and they move off. To what the north. They do. To the north, away from Lee. Don't want to go where Lee is. That's bad. Go north. Go away. And so these men, watch, the, the men are now watching this little group of riders come down, but the riders are going south. <clears throat> Grant was going south. The army was going south. Now, that may not sound like that much. The men went completely crazy. I mean, screaming and lighting these pine knots on fire and throwing them into the air and, and just this joy that they were going. So what Grant, who was a man who had overcome so much adversity in his life, his main attribute was that he just didn't believe that things were as bad as they were. And even though they were really bad at times in his life, he, he just didn't take that as a defeat. It was all, in a way, how Grant thought about it. Because what the wilderness was... He didn't think it was a defeat. He thought it was like, well, the opening campaign. He, you know, his view was, well, we fought it out kind of hard today, but we'll do it again tomorrow, and we're going south. Really interesting moment, and I think it's, it's, it's often, it is often uh, you know, said of Grant that that is his moment. Sherman, or his, his protege, his little buddy, Sherman thought that, Grant, that that was Grant's greatest moment in the war. Grant, just simply because he moved south. But then in the next battle at Spotsylvania Courthouse, which went on for 12 or 13 days, again, Grant's troops are getting mown down. But on day four, he decides to send Lincoln a telegram to tell him what's going on. What does he say in that telegram? Oh, this is the famous telegram of, okay, we're going to fight it out on this line. So he says, so, so it's, it's, it's actually, the, the line is buried in the middle of uh, other things. And he goes, what he says is, we're going to fight it on this line if it takes all summer. And again, maybe that doesn't sound that much like that much to you. It became nationally famous instantly. It was a household word. Everybody knew it because it was a sign of union willingness to fight. 
Union willingness essentially to finish the fight. Now, what happened later, the, the fight didn't finish right then, but it was, it was a moment of, of a turn in the war when Grant, I guess, in, in a lot of ways, lived up to what Lincoln wanted him to do. Lincoln just couldn't find a general who would keep attacking. The Union, they, just, they didn't have the, the, the guts or whatever you want to call it. They, they, they didn't, they, they, the Union generals had lacked that. And so finally, so what, it, what this meant was it meant that the grant was tough. Yes, the grant was moving south. Yes, the grant wasn't giving yes. And yes, that we were eventually going to hound Lee to his destruction. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, so that's it was a great moment in the war. It was guts, but it was also Grant's resilience. A and his resilience, right? right. Because he was, you know, he had his career, um, he had just, he had really failed at everything he'd done. He washed out of the Army for drinking, but that, that's the famous part. But really, he just, he kept failing at every enterprise he tried. He was, he picked, always picked the wrong people. He always had these terrible ideas when he was in California. I mean, his ideas were, he would... He figured out that ice, he could ship ice from, like, the northwest down to San Francisco. This is great, right? Ship ice. Well, the, you know, the, the, the ship got hung up and the ice melted, so he lost all of his money. At some point, he was going to ship chickens somewhere, and the chickens all died. I mean, everything he touched went south in business. And, and, uh, uh, and he was just a guy who was used to losing, but used to just not accepting defeat. Interesting person. Well, Lincoln was not going to accept defeat, and one of the reasons, as you said earlier, that the war went on as long as it did was Lincoln was not going to sit down and talk final resolution unless there were two essential conditions. One, the Union be restored, and two, that slavery be abolished. So has anyone ever tried to calculate how many uh, soldiers died or were badly wounded because Lincoln insisted on those requirements for the negotiations? You could reduce the whole war to, in some ways, I don't want to oversimplify things, but I mean, you could in some ways reduce the whole war, the whole latter war, to those two things that you just said, to Lincoln's insistence on that. That no matter how many people died and no matter how much money was spent, because Lee wasn't paying, Lincoln wasn't paying attention, that was the goal. The goal was we're not going to go back, we're not going to go to a peace table somewhere, somewhere. We're not going to do it. It's what elevated the stakes of the 64 election. This guy, he had these two things, and which, which meant that, at least if you looked at the Southern point of view, the South wasn't going along with that. The South wasn't going along with abolition of slavery and a re restoration of union. That meant putting everything back just the way it was. Right? That's, that's well, I'm sorry, put, putting the union back the way it was without slavery. That was exactly what they didn't want. So in a lot of ways, the whole war after the Emancipation Proclamation is a result of that. Mm -hmm. I think if you had another president, I can't, it gets so hypothetical, but so many other presidents would have gone to a peace table somewhere, would have allowed the Britain or France or even Russia to broker a peace or sat down or, I mean, and what that would have meant was the war would have had to have been fought and it would have been fought. It just wouldn't have been fought right then. I mean, we, we as a nation had to resolve the problem of slavery, and that was going to happen one way or the other. But, but another president, I mean, just the you know, 750,000 people died in the war. Another half million or, or, or more were wounded, and wounded in horrible ways. These are huge percentages of the nation. Wounded often meant amputation. And, or, you know, you're missing your nose or your face or your, you know, sex organs. Or I mean, it was nasty... It was a nasty war, and these weapons caused absolutely horrifying wounds. Mm -hmm. And you talked about in the hymns, there were many different components to the war. One of them, obviously, were the women. 
And one of the key women who you write about in the book is Clara Barton. Uh, how did the Civil War impact Clara Barton's life? Clara Barton, uh, it's interesting, she, there, there were a lot of people who, uh, the, the war turned around the lives of so many people. You have very famously Grant, you know, a failure, standing, a clerk in a leather shop just before the war started. Sherman, who was, um, you know, the, he was superintendent of a very small school in Louisiana, which later became LSU. But <clears throat> That's a great That's trivia nice. question. You can win some uh, Who was the money. first president of LSU? William Tecumseh Sherman. Great. So, yep, Sherman. Sherman, Sherman is a failure. Grant is a failure. Stonewall Jackson is pretty much a failure. I mean, these guys in the war, well, Sherman didn't get instantly well, Lee wasn't anything great. Huh? Lee wasn't anything great. Lee was just a, li- career, a lifer. In, in the, yeah, Lee was not any, anything close to being the, the myth and the mythical legendary Lee. But so Claire Barton was sort of one of those. She had this career, you know, she came from uh, Massachusetts and she had been this brilliant teacher, but in a time when they, when they you know, there, there were not a lot of career opportunities for women, and she kept getting thwarted in things that she tried. And she ended up at the patent office doing fabulously well in Washington and got thwarted there to, not, wasn't promoted, um, uh, and was kind of kicked back. And so she, she ends up undertaking this great um, kind of venture, which no one else was doing. She was, she would solicit supplies from, uh, you know, she would she would pack wagons full of food and medical supplies for the soldiers, and then she would take off with this kind of one-woman resupply mission, which is how it started out. Eventually, though, she 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 wends her way to the front. She finds she gets a pass. She always figures out how to get a pass, and then she figures out a way to get through the lines and up to the front where she brings her medical supplies, which are of course badly needed because the the Union Army Medical Corps was just not very efficient. So I'll just tell you one story that reflects what she did. Um, she, she was a, a remarkable hero. Um, so the Battle of Antietam, uh, this wasn't in the wars last year, but it's just a good example of who she was. Uh, Battle of Antietam, she somehow gets, uh, uh, she's got this, I guess, a coach in six, and it's stuffed full of supplies and medical supplies and bandages and all this stuff. She, some, she gets a pass from Secretary of War, she ends up, which is a pass to go to, you know, here, but she manages to get through the lines, and she's, she's now following the Union Army as it is setting up in front of Sharpsburg or, or Antietam Creek. And there's this place in Antietam, which you may have heard about. So Antietam is the single bloodiest day in American history to this day, and the single bloodiest part of that day happened in the cornfield in the northern part of the battlefield, a, a fight between... Uh, Stonewall Jackson and Union General Joe Hooker. Uh, just absolutely. I mean, this is where the, you know, the, the corn stalks get all cut down and with one volley, one of those things. She's in a field hospital just on the north end of this place, and she, she, when she arrives, all the bandages have, have, been, have been used. All the medical supplies are gone. These, these Union surgeons are there at their wit's end. They're using corn husks to bandage people. Men are bleeding to death all around. And into this <coughs> rides this person who the excuse me who the press called the battlefield angel she rides in she's got supplies she resupplies single-handedly this rather large field hospital she works as a surgeon she ends up cutting bullets out of people she's at the edge of the cornfield which means that there's there are shells and bullets just whizzing around her at one point she's holding somebody's head and she feels a ruffle in her dress and the guy you know the guy has half of his head taken off 
Um, and by the end of it, she was sort of being obeyed as though she were an officer. Anyway, this was Clara Bart. Nobody was doing anything like this. It was kind of reinventing battlefield medicine. And eventually, the war, the, the, the army, the, the nursing corps and the army medical corps caught up with this, with what she was doing. But uh, anyway, she's, she, she plays a, a, a big role in this great medical disaster that happens at, at Wilderness in Spotsylvania that, um, where, where because these fights are going on all the time. In the, in the old days of the Civil War, basically you would have a battle last a couple of days, and then there would be this people would back off and they would breathe and the stretcher men and the ambulance was, would clear the field and so forth. This was a, uh, this was the, this sequence of battles called the Overland Campaign was just battle after battle after battle after battle and it overloaded the system in this just absolutely catastrophic way. And, and, and again, Claire Barton sort of rides in her own way to the rescue. Now somebody who we haven't talked about yet but who is obviously a major figure was Robert E. Lee. And in putting the pieces together of what was going on during the last 12 months of the year, you identify what you called the Lee Paradox. What was the paradox? So the Lee Paradox um, is, the Lee Paradox is the fact that the more Lee won, the more the South didn't lose, the more the South was destroyed. So the paradox is the more you win, the more you're destroyed. and this was the main reason that the North couldn't win the war. I mean, there were lots of reasons. You can get very, very technical about it. But the main reason was Robert E. Lee. And so, this, so what happens is Lee's success, Lee's refusal to lose, the success of the Army of Northern Virginia in particular meant that the war lengthens. And the lengthening of this war unleashes all these demons. And this is this hard war that I was talking about, this kind of bitter hard war that I was the reason I wanted to write the book. It unleashes these prison camps that had never existed before, Andersonville, Libby in the South, just, I mean, conditions that were like the World War II conditions. Um, in the North, Elmira was almost as bad, had a death. Um, Elmira, New York, had Union prison camp for Confederate soldiers had a death rate that was only a percent less than Andersonville. Um, this last year of the war unleashes the anti-civilian marches of you know Sherman marching through the south, Sheridan marching through the Shenandoah Valley. It unleashes a guerrilla war that really hadn't existed before, this unofficial war of not a war of armies, but just vicious, where you have these unofficial militias and unofficial uh, rebel guerrillas, union militias, rebel guerrillas, marching around fighting each other and killing each other. Um, you have, and, and of course, you, you unleash the, the, this, the, uh, the crash of the Confederate economy. And so, what, so it, it's really, it, it's the defining, I guess, condition of, the, of, the, of, the, of the, the end of the war, which is that this war has kept going longer than it should have, and it's resulting in the absolute destruction of the South. It's also resulting, and this is the, uh, another interesting feature of it, in the destruction of Robert E. Lee himself. He personally just takes it on the chin. He has, you know, his, he married, he didn't have a lot of, he had an illustrious family, but he wasn't rich. He married really rich. He married George Washington's wife's granddaughter, who, uh, uh, Mariana Custis, who was uh, very, very wealthy. So Lee has three major estates, one of which, if you've ever been to Arlington National Cemetery, Arlington House, it looks like the Federal Reserve Bank. I mean, it's truly this astounding kind of, it's a Greek temple where Lee's main house, he lost that house, 
He lost his other big estates. He lost all of his lands. He lost all of his slaves. He lost all of his income. He had his investments were in Confederate bonds, which were spiraling quickly toward, toward zero. Uh, his family were refugees. At one point, he has you know a, one of his uh, favorite cousins is dying while his son is in a prison camp in, in the north, and the family is living at the you know charity of friends and. There's a, the Christmas of 1863 is just a painful, bad time for the family. He's, he's so uncomfortable with the family, he leaves, goes back to the front. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's Lee himself suffering from, well, from, from the Lee paradox. And uh, Sam points out the irony. Here he is killing all these Union soldiers who are being buried in the front yard of his home. That's what you call irony, and and not only a few, a, a, a lot of them. I mean, it's one of the great. It's one of the greatest. I mean, there's, there's a lot of irony floating around the Civil War, but that one where the men that Lincoln that Lee is killing are ending up in his front yard, uh, and and his house has been turned into a very rough Union army camp, but also a cemetery. Now, another one of the central figures during the last year of the war was Union General William Tecumseh Sherman. So you say Sherman rewrote the playbook. On the conduct of war, what exactly did he do in that respect? Sherman was Sherman was a piece of work. Sherman, I think, emerges as the poster boy for this book in a way. He's the he's the emblem. He's the theorist of of the hard war that comes, and uh, he's he's a really interesting guy. And, and one of the most interesting things about him is that he was pretty much a lousy general. Uh, I mean, the way you would normally configure or measure a general, let's say, if you were measuring. Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson or somebody or, or anybody, you'd measure your success on the battlefield, pretty much. Sherman was n- not good on the battlefield. I mean, I can, I can enumerate. I mean, his, at, at Shiloh, he failed to see 40,000 Confederates coming. Uh, shocking failure of reconnaissance that nearly cost him the, the battle. At, uh, at, uh, uh, at Vicksburg, he made uh, a, a completely misguided frontal assault. At Chattanooga, he performed terribly. Uh, in, and when he was in command of Kentucky, he had a full-scale nervous breakdown, imagining a 200,000-man rebel army that wasn't there. People called him insane. He was removed from command. Um, anyway, he, he, didn't, he, didn't, he was promoted. His, Grant loved and believed in, Sh- in Sherman. And so Sherman got promoted and Sherman got protected. After Chattanooga, where Sherman really performed badly, Grant essentially lied to cover it up and kept promoting him kept him going. So he was there by virtue of, of Grant. But actually, having just said what I said, you know, Sherman was possibly the most brilliant person in all of the war. Um, but not for that reason. I say in the book that the, he, one, of his, one of the parts of his genius was to invent a category of genius that hadn't existed before. And what Sherman became was the, was the theorist, explainer, ideologue, and moralist of this hard war that was brought against Southern civilians. And in this sense, he was more about words. He was more about talking. He was more about, uh, uh, he was, was Sherman's uh, Sherman's basic message, I think you could reduce to this, which is what he he said to the people of Atlanta when he announced that he was going, he was exiling all of them. He was taking a major Southern city and turning them all homeless. That was, he was explaining this to them. He said, so this is your fault. You bear full moral responsibility. You brought on the war. Um, 
and this is what's going to happen to you, basically. You know, his famous line, you might as well appeal against the thunderstorm. You know, this isn't going to work. I'm going to show you what, if you're going to rebel against the United States, which previously guaranteed you rule of law and property rights and all of these things and protection, I'm going to show you what unrestrained jungle warfare looks like when it's only power out there and you don't have a government. And he's articulating all these really hard moral lessons that, of course, the South hates him bitterly for and the North loves him for and cheers him on. But there's nobody in the North who's articulating quite this sentiment. And if you had to boil Sherman down, it's that he wanted to make, he wanted to show the South that, that war was synonymous with individual ruin. And I think you could say that his march across Georgia, that wasn't, that wasn't going to do anything militarily. He wasn't fighting anybody. He was just burning things, you know, and destroying things. Um, but that was the message. Break the will. Make them think that their own personal, that it means their own personal ruin. It's interesting how there was, I, there, I'll, I'll, I'll finish this answer with this one. Sherman was so, this is another way in which he became famous without fighting. Okay, so it, um, August 2nd, 1864, I'm sorry, September 2nd, he takes Atlanta, the single most significant event of the war. He had done that after a really long campaign that had been going on since, since uh, April, that he hadn't managed it that well. He outnumbered his foes two to one, and it, he just kind of fought Joe Johnston and eventually John Bell Hood down to Atlanta. And then there were all these battles, and months went by, and people were wondering, oh, my God, Sherman's never going to take Atlanta. It wasn't a hugely successful blitzkrieg, put it that way. Um, but he finally does take Atlanta. It is the event that saves Lincoln. It's the event that means that Lincoln gets reelected. But here's what Sherman does after Atlanta, because it's so radical. The first thing he does is he's beaten this army, this southern army under John Bell Hood. And the, 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 the Hood army is fleeing up to the northwest, right? And Sherman takes off after the beaten army. Of course, that's what you're going to do. You're going to chase the army. And everybody in Washington was cheering, go get him. Sherman pursues him for about 100 miles. He's having his supply line raided by Bedford Forest, and he, he's just not getting anything done. And he, Sherman stops, and he says, I'm not going to chase him anymore. I don't care. Everybody in Washington, oh, my God, you could hear the sound of a thousand jaws hitting the ground in Washington. Oh, no, you're letting this, you're willfully disengaging from a beaten army. It's never happened before. You're marching away from the beaten foe. He says, yeah, and I don't, I don't care at all. He said, so people couldn't believe it. He said not only that, but the other thing that Union generals were just paranoid about was their supply lines. Because with these enormous armies, 60,000, 80,000 men, you, you needed multiple train loads a day of forage for the horses and food and supplies. You couldn't exist without this constant supply. Which be, and because you were in the South, right, you're the Union fighting in the hostile area, you, these are long supply lines. Sherman then says, okay, I've got the supply that lasts from, goes from Atlanta to Chattanooga. He says, I'm just, I, not, I don't care about it. He said, not only that, I'm going to tear it all up. I tear up my supply. Okay. Bedford Forest can do whatever he wants. I don't care. So you've got to be kidding me. The third thing he does is he says, he says, you know, and by the way, I know we've taken Atlanta, but I'm not going to leave a garrison there because I don't care about occupying the city. It doesn't make any difference to me. And again, you can just hear the sound of everybody. No one, no one agreed with this, first of all, in Washington, at least initially. Um, it was to Grant's credit that he went along with it. Um, and then the final thing was, he says, and you know what I'm going to do now? And this has been one of those radical things of the war. I'm just going to cut free of all my supply lines and take this army out into the middle of Georgia, just the army, and we're just going to live off the land. Now, in all those things that I just said, 
which he then does, of course, his famous march to the sea, march through, South, through the Carolinas. But notice that in all those, those four things that I just listed, there's no fighting going on. Sherman doesn't fight anybody when he marches to the sea. There's, it's, fighting isn't the deal. He's just destroying things. There is this absolutely brilliant guy who isn't fighting at all. He's becoming famous essentially by not fighting. Interesting guy. Sorry, that was a really long, long-winded answer. Well, because he did what he did, Lincoln did get reelected, obviously, in November 1864, which led to his famous second inaugural address in March 1865, the one that ends with, with malice toward none, with charity for all. And you conclude what this message really meant was Lincoln saying, quote, the Civil War amounted to an inevitable settling of accounts. How so? Okay, so this is his second inaugural. So if you haven't read it recently, I highly recommend it. I mean, to me, it's the greatest political speech ever given. A Gettys, uh, the Gettysburg Address is a, is a good one, but not the second inaugural. Because in the second inaugural, what Lincoln does is he articulates a vision of what the war was about and why it happened that absolutely nobody else articulated ever. It, and it's astounding. And what he says is, what he says is that the Civil War was blood atonement for 250 years of slavery. That slavery had wound itself around the American nation, and he's talking about North and South. He is not pointing fingers at Georgia and saying, y'all did this, because, of course, Georgia was not only to blame. Slavery was wrapped around the core of America, right? We, were, we had it in the North. We you know, would, uh, you know, 10 presidents, or 15 presidents had slaves, 10 while in office. Ulysses S. Grant had slaves. I mean, you know, there was, there's this notion that only the South had slaves uh, is not true. And so, he, so we have this idea that, that this is, uh, Lincoln's speech is, is, is based in Scripture, but you don't have to believe in Scripture to understand what he's saying, is that this was an atonement that the nation had to go through in order to expiate the sin of slavery, of which the entire nation was guilty. And it's just, and, and so that's the account. The account is, is in his mind, divine. It's, 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 uh, but it's, it's the ultimate settling of, I guess if you, you could call it the nation's original sin. Mm-hmm. Now before we get to questions from the audience. Sam Gwynn is a fabulous storyteller, which allows him to bring history alive in his books and in front of crowds. We did three programs together in less than 24 hours during his trip to Dallas-Fort Worth this week. His books of history move from chapter to chapter like a spellbinding novel. You can find Sam Gwynn's new book on Amazon and wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all of my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thank you for listening.